uh, study of the Psalms, our summer Psalms. So Lord willing, next year we'll pick back up uh, somewhere in the Psalter. But, but this ends our summer in the Psalms. And next Sunday, uh, we'll begin a fall series looking at the New Testament book of James. So uh, next week we'll be in James. But, but this morning we're going to take a look at Psalm 90. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 90. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chair in front of you. Uh, you can find our passage on page 496, Psalm 90. And, and it's good to have God's word open in front of you as we come to it. And, and I would just say this too, that, that if you are um, maybe new to the faith, if you're uh, just exploring Christianity maybe for the first time and, and you don't have a Bible, um, please let us know. We would love to give you a Bible. In fact, in fact, if you came in here this morning and you do not own a Bible, you can take the Bible in the chair with you. So uh, just let us know so we can replenish it for, uh, for next week. But, um, but uh, we would be happy for you to have that because uh, this is the very word of life and it's important for us to have it. So uh, if, if you already have like 12 Bibles, don't take this one just because it's a different one. <laughs> Maybe leave those for those who don't. But, um, but this morning we are going to look at Psalm 90. And uh, Psalm 90 is a psalm of Moses. In fact, it's the only psalm that's attributed to Moses in the entire book of Psalms. And uh, we're not really sure exactly when he wrote this psalm. We're not exactly sure what the circumstances were that surrounded him writing it. But, but there's good reason to believe that he probably wrote this psalm near the end of his life. And one of the reasons why we can uh, surmise that he wrote it near the end of his life is because the theme of death is prominent in this psalm. And so you can imagine that Moses, as uh, the end is drawing near, as his years are coming to an end, that he's maybe now looking back on his life, and he's reflecting upon it. And, and he engages with the Lord in this prayer over what it means to live, uh, not just what it means to die, because the truth is all of us are going to die, and so this is an important thing for us to take up and consider. But not just what does it mean for us to die or how to die well, but but instead, what does it mean to live as we await that day of death? That's what Moses is taking up. And, and this is an important thing for us to consider because every one of us actually is faced with it on a daily basis. How is it that we are to live in the days that the Lord has given us? So let's go ahead and read Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may gain, we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. 
Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of, your, of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Our Father, it is true that you are from everlasting to everlasting, that you are the beginning and the end, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, um, Omega, you are the Almighty King. And so we come as your people humbly before you and ask that you would show yourself to be faithful yet again, that you would remind us of your steadfast love and you would teach us to number our days. So help us now, allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to glorify you, to please you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I know Christmas is still a few months away, but as I was reading this uh, passage, I couldn't help but, re but be reminded of A Christmas Carol. So Charles Dickens' wonderful story, A Christmas Carol. I'm sure almost all of us are familiar with this because of the many movie adaptations of A Christmas Carol. And, and some of us have actually read the book, right? It's really short. It's a great read. I would encourage you to take the time. It'll only take you a day or two. But, but, uh, but A Christmas Carol is, is a very fun book that I was reminded of because, um, because of what occurs with Scrooge. So you remember A Christmas Carol? It centers on this one man, this old, miserly, crotchety old man, Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Even that name, Scrooge. I mean, it just makes it sound like the name of a curmudgeon, doesn't it? Scrooge. And that's what he was. He was a curmudgeon. He was miserly, and he hoarded his wealth, and he was not generous at all. Instead, he actually was, was very, very selfish, Right? The men that worked for him, he, he had to work in, in cold and in abject poverty because Scrooge hoarded his wealth for himself. Scrooge. Well, there's one night you remember that Scrooge goes to sleep and goes to bed and he's visited by three ghosts, right? The ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And as he is visited by all these ghosts, he's given pictures of various Christmases, the Christmas past and the Christmas present and the one yet to come. And it is the one that is yet to come that rattles him, right? It, it rocks his world because what he sees in his future is not what he has been thinking about. He has only been thinking about hoarding his wealth, of, of controlling his possessions, right? But now he sees what awaits him and what awaits him a cold and lonely death. He sees his gravestone and his name etched into it. He sees the people coming to the funeral, to the memorial service, but he realizes that they've only come, not because they love Scrooge, not because they want to remember him, but because they've been promised a free lunch. <laughs> and he realizes that his entire life has been in vain. His entire life has been in vain. And, and so this vision of what awaits him, it shakes him. It, it rocks his world. And so he awakes to new life and he decides he is going to change his ways. Right? I mean, that is the moral of the story, isn't it? That, that Scrooge sees that all that he has lived for has been pointless. It has been worthless. And so when he awakes, he's going to be a different man. 
He sees his death and it motivates him to live differently in the days leading to his death. And that's what this psalm is inviting us to do. This psalm is inviting us to reflect upon our death. That's what Moses does in verse 10. The years of life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Right? We know this. Some of us will live 70, 80, 90, maybe even 100 years. But we know that there is not years to live beyond that. In verse 12, he says to God, teach us to number our days. Moses is reflecting upon what will come, that his death will ensue. But he isn't simply engaging in some morbid fascination with death. There is purpose for considering his end. It's there is purpose for considering morality, his mortality. And the purpose for that is so that he would live rightly in those days leading to his death. That he would live wisely today. That's what he says in verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You see, Moses is saying that when we reckon with our mortality, it should lead us to pursue wise living. That when we understand that death will come, that it should cause us to seek out and to gain a heart of wisdom. So what is wisdom? One theologian, uh, a man I studied under, said that uh, wisdom is the art of biblical living. Wisdom is the art of biblical living, that, that wisdom is to live as God intends us to live, that wisdom is to think thoughts that God would desire us to think, that wisdom is to understand ourselves, our humanity, and God rightly. It was the French theologian John Calvin who said, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts— the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. You see, that's what wisdom, where wisdom resides, that, that, that wisdom begins with the knowledge of who God is and who we are. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as, as we acknowledge the fact that death will come calling for all of us, that, that we are going to consider how is it that we are to live wisely in those days what does wise understanding about God and about ourselves look like? So let's begin with man. So who is man? Well, there's many, many things that Moses could have said about man, and there's many things that Scripture say about man, and there are tomes that are written about the doctrine of man. But Moses directs our attention to two things about us. He tells us that we are both frail and we are failing. That we are frail and we are failing. And, and even by starting to talk about death, it points to our frailty, right? But we don't even need to think about death to be reminded of our frailty. We're reminded of it on a daily basis. Or at least for me, I'm reminded of it every single summer. Because during the summers, uh, I played church league softball with some of y'all. <laughs> and we go out on the field and we put on our CTK jersey and we wear our hats and I grab my glove and I run out to my position. And I'm standing there at shortstop, I'm ready for the ball to be hit, and invariably sometime the ball gets hit, and, and I move quickly to run to get the ball, right? I, I'm moving quickly to my left to run behind second base because the ball is bounding up the middle, and, and I'm running to it, and I stretch out my glove, and I open it up, and as I do so, I see the ball go shooting right past. <laughs> And the people who uh, are on the team of the guy who just hit the ball are clapping. What a great hit, 
perfect placement. And maybe the fans in the stands are going, nice hit, well done. And I'm sitting there in my heart, smacking my glove against my leg. (laughs) Sometimes it's not just in my heart, by the way. (laughs) And what I am thinking is not a great hit, not a wonderful placement of a ball. What I am thinking is six months, one year, two years, three years ago, I make that play and I make the the, the, uh, off-balance throw and he's out by like a foot or two. Every single summer, I'm reminded I'm a little bit slower. That my legs don't move as quickly as they once did. That, that my muscles are sore in places that, that they were never sore before. And my shoulder, it, it seems to creak when I throw. And y'all know what this is like. You know what this is like because your eyes are starting to fade and you're supposed to be wearing glasses, right? I say supposed to because... Sometimes we don't when we should, (laughs) right? Our hearing is starting to go, and so we have to wear hearing aids now. And just the simple act of getting out of a chair, we feel the creaking in our joints. And all of these things remind us that our bodies are failing. It reminds us that we are frail, right? And and that's what Moses is reminding us of. He's reminding us that our bodies are frail. In verse 3, he says, to God, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Now that language of dust, it it harkens us back to Genesis, to two different places in Genesis. The first place, it's reminding us of our state in creation. So you remember in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the details of creation, that God created the heavens and the earth and all that they contain in the span of six days. And on the sixth day, God created the jewel of his creation. He created man. And in Genesis 2, we have a zeroing in, a a focusing in on the creation of man. And there we read that God, he formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That God created man out of the very dust. Now that is just... uh, That is just mind-boggling to think about. Um, We kind of pass over that. But if you just take some time and think, like, that that is remarkable. But then think about what dust is. So we are the jewel of creation. That's what, you know, how Genesis 2 kind of builds up to. But, but we are yet but dust. We are dust. I mean, think about dust. Dust isn't firm. Dust isn't strong. It's frail, right? It gets blown by the wind. It just goes here or there. And that's what we are. We are but dust. We are light and weak, and we are blown here and there by the wind. We are frail. That's the first thing that the fact that we are dust points us to. It, it reminds us of creation, but, but the fact that we are dust also reminds us not just of creation, but it reminds us of the fall. It reminds us not just that we are frail, but it reminds us that we are failing. See, that phrase, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, it is invoking the very words that God spoke to Adam. So you remember after God created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden. And while they were in the garden, Adam and Eve were to tend the garden. And they were to care for the animals. And they were to eat of any of the fruit of the trees except for one, right? There was one prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what did Adam and Eve do? (laughs) You can't touch it. You can't eat it. You can't have it. And so what did they do? They had it. So they went and they ate. And they rebelled against God, and they turned from his ways. And so when God comes into the garden and he asks them all these sorts of questions about what they have done, he places a curse upon them. And what does he say? By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, 
till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, because Adam had failed to obey God, his failure brought death into this world. Because Adam had failed to obey God, death is an intruder in God's good creation. But this failing didn't end with Adam. It continued with Moses. He says in verses 7 through 9, For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. You see, man's failing didn't end with Adam. It continued with Moses. Moses failed, but so too have we. Moses said, our iniquities are laid before the Lord. See, Moses knew this firsthand because Moses, though he was the man of God, that's how he's described in our title. He is the man of God. He's the great prophet of God. He's the man who delivered Israel out of Egypt at the command of God. He's the one who stood on the mountain and conversed with God. He's also the man who in his anger and sin struck the rock and was disciplined by God. Moses knows that he too has sinned, that he could not hide his sin, and neither can we. I mean, did you notice that in our confession of sin, we confess that that God forgive us for all the sins that everyone knows? Basically, that was the language. And and forgive the sins that, that no one knows. Forgive the sins that we keep hidden. The reason why we confess that is because we, we know what Moses has said, that, that even our hidden sins are known to God. Right? Those sins that we, we keep in the deep recesses of our minds, in the darkest place of our hearts, those sins that we never speak of, that, that we won't even whisper of. And those sins that no one ever sees. We think we may have hidden them, but, but to God they are crystal clear. They are laid before him. You see, the truth is, friends, is that we have failed. Like Adam before Moses and Moses before us, we too have failed. We have failed to trust God in faithfulness and trust. We have failed to walk with God in obedience and hope. And because of this failing, we deserve death. That's what Romans 6 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. That that is what we have earned. You see, we are frail and failing. That's who man is. Now, before you're completely despairing, (laughs) right? It's like you probably didn't wake up thinking, man, I can't wait to hear about some death this morning. (laughs) Before you're completely despairing, remember that death doesn't just teach us to look wisely at ourselves. Our deaths also teach us to look wisely at God. And what we see is that though we are frail and failing, God is forgiving and firm. God is forgiving and firm. Look at what Moses says in verses 13 through 17. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. 
Now, this is interesting because Moses, right after he talks about his sin and his iniquity and his death, he says, God, turn to us. Why would he want God to return to him? Like, like if, if my sin, right, like when, okay, let's just be honest, when we sin against one another, our very first thing that we think is, man, I really hope they show up at my door tomorrow, <laughs> right? Like, like we hide. We want to pull away. We don't want to be confronted by the person that we've sinned against. And yet Moses says, return, O Lord. And why? Why does he do that? Because he knows that in his need, in his failing, and in his frailty, what he needs is God's forgiveness. That that is what he is in need of. He knows that though he has sinned, what he needs is God's grace and his mercy. He needs his pity. You see that? He asked for it. Have pity on your servants. Moses needs God's great love. And Moses can ask for God's great love. He can ask for his pity and mercy because Moses experienced God's mercy himself. Right? There are many places we could turn to point to the fact that, that Moses knew God's grace, but, but Exodus 32 is a great one. Exodus 32, you remember God has delivered his people out of Egypt. He's led them through the wilderness. He's taken them to the mountaintop. And so how do God's people respond? With rejoicing and celebration, right? <laughs> no, they build a golden calf and they bow down and they worship it and say, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. They turn to idols and they turn away from the Lord. And so what does God say? He's on the mountaintop with Moses and he decides he's going to bring destruction upon Israel. Do you remember this? And he would have been right to do so. He would have had every justification to do that because Israel was turning away from him. But what does Moses do? He stands between God and the people and he intercedes on their behalf and says, have pity. Relent, Lord. Remember the promises you have made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Have mercy on your people. And God did. God took pity on them. He was merciful to them. He was gracious. And Moses experienced this firsthand. That's why he can say, return, O Lord. Have pity on your servants. Return, O Lord, and show your steadfast love. He knew the grace of the Lord. And friends, if you are in Christ, so do you. You see, the truth is, is that the the same grace and the same mercy that Moses needed is the grace and mercy that we need and that we receive. A few chapters later in Exodus, God declares that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we too know that steadfast love and faithfulness. We know the forgiveness of the Lord because it is in the cross that we see God's forgiveness on greatest display. Because it was in the cross that God showed his great work and his glorious power. Because in the cross, Jesus took our sin and the judgment we deserved upon himself so that we would be forgiven. So that for all of our failings, we would know God's grace and mercy that he would take pity upon even me and even you. It is the cross that we see God's forgiveness on display, that God is forgiving in the face of our failures, but we also see in this passage that God is firm in the midst of our frailty. Did you see how the psalm begins in verses 1 and 2? 
Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the world and the, the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before the mountains were formed, before the earth was ever fashioned, before the world even existed, there was God. I mean, we, we pass over this. We think about, right, we can say that, like the eternality of God, like it just kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit, right? Like God's always been. But I mean, think about that for a minute. Before there was Bent Mountain, there was God. <laughs> right? Before there were the oceans, there was the Lord. Like this should cause us to marvel. It, it should cause us to marvel like, like I see in children as they're learning like numbers and age. So I was reminded this week of um, when our kids were a little bit younger and we were teaching them to count. So we have these placemats at, at our house. Some of you have seen these. These are educational placemats. And as the kids have gotten older, they've, they've become more advanced. So we have like the presidents and we have maps and the solar system and we have the periodic table of the elements. And, and every once in a while we're sitting eating dinner and we point these things out. I don't go to the periodic table. That's where like cat goes because I don't know what this stuff means. But, but this is what we have before them. And, and when they were younger, they, they had more basic ones like letters, A, B, C, right? The alphabet. We're teaching them the alphabet and, and numbers. And, and our number one, it, it had one through 10. And then the line below it was 11 through 20 and then 21 through 30. And it kept going like that. And uh, when the kids were like four and five, you know, and we're going through this one, two, three, four, they'd be like, well, well where am I? Like, how old am I? And we go, one, two, three, four. And they'd be like, wow, I'm four. You know, it was this cool thing, this light bulb going off. And then every once in a while they go, but, but where are you, daddy? <laughs> where are you, mommy, on the list? And so we go, well, not on the first row. And we'd pass the second row through the teens and pass the third row through the 20s. And we'd hit hit the 30s, right? And, and I go, well, I'm down, you're here and I'm here. And, and mom's right there. She's just a little bit on the, <laughs> we like to point out that Kat's less than a year older than me, but, um, but she's still older. So anyway, so we would point this out and I would go, you're here and I'm here. And they'd be like, 36? That's so old, <laughs> right? Right? Because <laughs> to a four-year-old, 36 is forever, right? And then we go, you know, it's really not that old. Uh, 36 isn't that old. I can still lift you up, <laughs> right? I can, can still put you in your place, you little man. No, um, but, um, but we, we would keep pointing out, you know, these numbers. And 36 isn't that old. And, and we point to other numbers on the graph, right? There's 40 and there's 80 and there's 90. And, and look, this isn't even on the graph, but there's a million. And their eyes would just be bugging out of their head, right? As they're trying to comprehend 36 and 86 and a million. And I was thinking about that, like, when we think about that God has always been, like, that's, that's what should happen to our eyes. <laughs> they should bulge out of our heads. And we should just be shocked. I mean, like, I was thinking about this, like, like God has no age. Have you ever thought about that? Like, for God to have an age, it means that there had to have been day one of God for us to start counting, Right? But that would have me meant that there was a time when God was not, but, but God has always been. And so, so he's not even on the placemat. Like kids, like that is mind-boggling. He's not on the placemat. He's always been. Before the heavens and the earth, before the mountains were formed, before the ocean, there has always been God. There's a, the one constant in the universe has been the Lord. 
that he has always been, and he was there before Moses, and he was there thousands of years after he created the heavens and the earth, and thousands of years after Moses, and he will continue to be thousands of years from everlasting to everlasting, even after Jesus returns. That's how firm he is. That the God who is everlasting to everlasting, he, he is the same God yesterday and today and forevermore. It is remarkable to think about that he is the firm, eternal God. But it's not just his eternality that shows his firmness. It's, it's also the fact that this same God who has always been and will always be is actually our dwelling place. He is our shelter. That's what Moses says, right? In verse 1, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And then verse 16, he says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. You see, what Moses is saying is that from year to year, generation to generation, from the beginning until the end, he is our dwelling place. Like, think about that. The God who is unmovable cares for you, shelters you. That even in the midst of death, he is our dwelling place. That's what Jesus said, right? I go away. It is better that I go away because in my going, I will leave for you the Holy Spirit. But in my going, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you so that though our days are numbered and though we will one day breathe our last, that though we die, we are secure in God. That though death awaits us because of God's forgiveness and his firmness, there is actually life beyond death. You know, I was thinking about this um, as I've been reading a book uh, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So I'm reading a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together with a Group of Men. And this book is wonderful. Um, it's about community and the church and whatnot. But as I'm reading it, I can't help but constantly be thinking about Bonhoeffer's life, not just the words he's writing. And Bonhoeffer, if you don't know, was a German pastor who uh, lived in the 30s and the 40s, and he lived in Germany. There was a stint there where he lived in the United States, but, but he was living in Germany, and he was there during the time when the Nazi party was trying to make the German church an, an arm of their propaganda. That they were they were trying to bring the German church under their authority, and, and Bonhoeffer, with some of the other pastors in the German church, resisted this. They resisted, and Bonhoeffer himself actually went underground, and, and he sought to work against the Nazi party and the, the threat of Hitler, and, and so he, he was caught eventually, if you know his story, and he was placed in a concentration camp. And though Bonhoeffer was surrounded by death, and he was reminded of death on a daily basis, he continued to proclaim the truth. And he continued to pray before the guards and he continued to share the gospel with those around him. And then the day came when Bonhoeffer's name was called. And everyone knew that when the guard called your name, what awaited you, it was your death. And so Bonhoeffer left his cell and he went to the gallows. And he went and he fell on his knees and he prayed before the Lord before he would be executed. And the, the camp doctor survived the war, and he was reflecting back on that day when Bonhoeffer was executed, and he said this. He said, I was deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer, 
In the almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely to the submissive will of God. It's remarkable. It's beautiful, isn't it? That even as he went to his death, a, a death that was wrong, like he was, a death that, that he was being falsely executed, like even though he was going to his death, he went completely confident that he was securing God. But there's more to it. There's more. Before he ever made it to the gallows, when they called his name, he walked out of his cell and he turned to his cellmates, his fellow prisoners, and he said to them, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. You see, Bonhoeffer knew what Moses knew and what for all those who are in Christ know, that though we are frail and failing, that though there is a day coming when we will breathe our last, that though there are, our days are numbered, that God is firm, that God is forgiving. See, Bonhoeffer knew exactly what it is that Moses is encouraging us to take comfort in, that though we die because of Christ, we will certainly live. And so, friends, let us not despair at our failing. Let us not be overcome by our frailty, but instead, let us rest secure in the one to whom we dwell. Let us rest secure in the God who is forgiving, in the God who is firm. Amen. Our Father, we do thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but even though we are deserving of your judgment, we are deserving of discipline, that though because of our failing, our sin, and because of our frailty, uh, we know that we will one day die, we, we thank you that you are firm, that you are forgiving, that you are immovable and unshakable. And so we take, we take confidence, we we place our hope in you, our God who is firm, our God who has forgiven us through Christ. And we ask that today and tomorrow we would always hope, hope in you, knowing that we are secure. You are our dwelling place. So, Father, teach us to number our days so that we would live wisely today. We pray in Christ's name and God's people said, Amen. I'll invite the ushers to come forward and we'll take this morning's tithes and offerings.